Thank you. Something also that I wanted to bring up, I forgot to mention announcements, is going to be um, a missionary that we have sent from our church. His name is Evan Mays. He and his wife will be in next week. And um, they minister into a an area in Dominican Republic known as the, it's, a, it's called a dump ministry. So basically, if you've ever been to poor impoverished countries, you'll notice that there are large trash dumps and kind of like here when refuse is taken to a place. Well, over there, there are people that live in those dumps who basically separate what they can eat and um, items they can use for household goods and that kind of thing. So it's an entire group of people who thousands of people who live in a dump uh, that one he ministers to. And um, anyway, Evan is going to be giving um, basically an information meeting at my home. And that'll be next Sunday night. So not this Sunday, but next Sunday at um, 6 o'clock. If you could, do me a big favor and tell me you're coming. You can email me, text me, thump me on the shoulder, do whatever. So I just know whether to cook for 20 or 30 or whatever. And so it's a free free food. Come hang out and just listen to his um, his uh, his ministry is going on over there. Okay, so, um, hey, there is a lot of scripture that I'm going to be covering today. Quite a bit. As a matter of fact, uh, we are going to be covering three chapters. Uh, we're going to be going through um, chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. Now what we're going to ask you to do is this. I'm going to have you, if you would, bear with me in the fact that I'm going to go on, I'm going to walk through chapter 8, I'm going to skip over verse 9 and go to chapter 10. And then we're going to come back, I'm sorry, we're going to chapter 8, I'm going to skip over chapter 9, and we're going to go to chapter 10. Then I'm going to come back to 9 at the end of the message, or midway through. So the reason I'm doing that is there's a more of a flow in that particular uh, style and there's also chronologically it was written eight and ten flow together in a chronological standpoint those are david's victories it'll make sense i do need you all to look at me when i say this i need grace from you this morning there's a lot of numbers names there's a lot of that going on okay but you all know we walk through verse by verse. There's going to be some verses I'm just simply going to say, all right, the next four verses cover this. But bear with me. I say that because the nine o'clock crowd looked like there was gas coming through the, the, the filter and I'm just watching them just doing this number and um, pulling out dogs, dog stories and everything else to keep them awake. But no, but anyway, they, um, uh, we're, as we walk through through that, we're going to come into chapter 9, and chapter 9 is going to be, I think, something that will really, I hope, convict you like it does me. There's uh, So we're catching up on three of those, three chapters today. Again, next week, we're taking a break because we're going to be talking about um, what God's doing with us in the building process, okay? So... Chapter 8, 2 Samuel. Let me pray for me real quick, okay? Jesus, please speak through me. Let this message um, come out, not only making sense, but making a change in our lives. Please use me in Jesus' name. Amen. By the way, some of you who weren't here last week, please, when I say this, I'm saying this because uh, I get to really brag on Shale because he's, he's not here at the moment. I want you to do this. Go online and listen to his message from last week. Folks, if I said it was one of the most powerful messages that I have listened to in a long time, it is. A, if you have any questions of what, if somebody were to stop you in the street and say, "Explain the Davidic, uh, Davidic covenant or the Abrahamic uh, covenant," what would you say? 
you listen to this message and it is, it is the most, it's the most easy to understand display of God's love for us all the way to fulfilling the covenant with Jesus being born in Bethlehem. I'm just telling you, it was one of my favorites. Please listen to that message and just go on our website. All right. With that being said, chapter 8, verse 1. Here we are, 2 Samuel. Uh, after this, meaning what we learned last week, David uh, was rebuked by God. David wanted to build him a home, and David said, uh, God said, David, I'm going to build you a home. He said, after this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them and took Methagama out of the hand of the Philistines. By the way, verse 1, kind of a big deal because we will never be haunted by the Philistines again. You guys have heard nothing but the Philistines have been on our ankles for the whole year. The Philistines, the Philistines, they're done. They're gone. They're, this, is, this battle is over. The only times you'll hear this being brought back up are times where they're referring to former battles. And so David has defeated this army. This army was the enemy to the west. The west. David has four flanks. The west has been secured. Verse 2. Now he defeated Moab. And he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. If this sounds evil, it sounds pretty evil to me. He lines up all the survivors into three lines. Line here, line here, line here. Two lines, he executes all of them. One line, he leaves them to, lets them live. And what you and I would look at and think, that was pretty... It was pretty evil. It was pretty mean to take prisoners and do that. Actually, in the time, this would have been a sign of grace. This would have been basically saying the Moabites, which had been so evil and such a fighting force against Israel, basically David allowed one-third of them to live. Odd way of looking at it, but there it is. So, um, by the way, Moab represents everything to the east. The Philistines to the west, Moabites to the east, they're handled. Now he just has the north and south to deal with. Verse 3. David also defeated Habadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. Um, whenever you see things like at the river Euphrates, as he went to restore his power, what do they mean by that? Um, they were going back basically to get water for thousands and thousands of, um, of men and horses. You gotta keep in mind, you go to a well where you're dropping a bucket in some village and pulling up a, a, a cistern of, of water, that's nowhere near gonna feed an army. So they would have to go to a massive wi- river, a mass for almost a mile wide, and feed. And by the way, that's a point of, um, I gotta put it, that's a, that's, a, that's a weak point, basically. They would have, that's generally where you got attacked, is when you're at a river watering the horses. The horses were engrossed on getting some water. And so David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers, and David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. Now, why would he do that? Why would he destroy? Why would he get rid of um, the, the different horses? And that is, we, there's two thoughts on that. Number one, David hated chariots because they reminded him of the Philistines because the Philistines were the first ones to invent them or bring him into the area. He hated it. Secondly, it could mean that he's adhering to um, a basic law and premise that said a king should never be given many chariots nor a priest much gold. So they wouldn't rely on it too much. At any case, he destroys a lot of the chariots, a lot of the horses. Um, Verse verse, uh, 6. 
Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and Assyrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants. And to summarize the next five or six verses, he took shields of armor. He took shields of gold from the officers and and the, and the royalty. He brought them all to Jerusalem. And he put them in a place of distribution. You're going to see that in just a minute. He basically brought all this wealth back. But unlike other kings, he distributed a lot of the wealth. A lot of the wealth was obviously to pay for an army, to pay for things the government needed. But anything extra would go to the people. It's quite unique. Um, So this was the army, by the way. the, the group that he destroyed at the river, that was the north. The group that he destroyed um, down, to, uh, down later in, 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 um, in verse... Let me just find a verse so you can see it. Um, um, verse 11. These also uh, King David dedicated the Lord together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued. From Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines. Amalek and all the spoil of Habites are basically he has now no more enemies in the north, the south, the east, the west. He is free from all battles. He has defeated every known enemy he has. They're gone. They're eradicated. So verse 15, what does this mean? So David reigned over all of Israel and David administered, here it is, administered justice. And if you're speed reading this, you probably think it says equality. It says inequity to all his people. Not only did he give justice, he distributed a lot of the wealth to the people. And so when that reads, so David reigned over all of Israel, isn't interesting what a word that is. It's like um, Cameron, I think of Caleb and I think, I think Caleb is going to the mission field. Somewhere to make a statement like that. Unless you had the backstory about Caleb's salvation, getting discipled, walking that, you just think somebody's going to the mission field. When you hear someone's pregnant, when you think, oh, congratulations, by the way, one of many, by the way, there's a pandemia of like uh, of pregnancies in this room. Um, you know, you think those are all over the place, you know, and you look at it and you keep thinking pregnancy. Oh, so-and-so is pregnant. And I'm looking around for all their pregnant couples. They're all over the place. And so here's what's interesting. People don't know necessarily the story behind about the emotional um, um, the emotional love, the emotional attachment, the story in meeting, the story in dating, the story in, you know, are we going to give up? And you see that line, so-and-so is pregnant. So-and-so is, is on a mission field. So David reigned over all of Israel. David, who was once pursued by the king of Israel to be killed. David, who was once anointed as a, as a ruddy teenager, who basically didn't know anything about politics. This David, who was hiding in a cave. This David, who was wondering, God, why, have you, why is this happening? This, this David, who was, on, who was being pursued for over 12 years of his life. Don't let that fall on deaf ears. So David reigned over all of Israel. He is now at a place we call a pinnacle. You would call pinnacle at the very highest point in, in historicity of something. I think, you know, if you were to look at, at different elements of, of, of war, of wars, you would say, okay, this country was at the pinnacle of their movement in this place. This country was at the pinnacle of this. And that means not only have they reached the top, but they are about 
to meet something in a decline. We're not going to see the beginning of the decline today, but we will in two weeks. You're going to see it when, well, we know David, who on a lazy morning walks up to a balcony and overlooks a city only to be tempted and begins the demise of something in a great way. But for now, is it a pinnacle? And here you're going to see something in chapter 10. Where we're going to go to chapter 8, verse 10. Look at verse 10. After this, verse 1, the king of the Ammonites died, and Han and his son ruled in his place. Stop at verse 1 if I could. I didn't break this down in a previous sermon, and I really should explain this one. Of all the people groups you've seen and we've discussed, they're all most, mostly gone. I mean, we'll see the Syrians, they're still around, you know. Um, Philistines, some would say that, well, it delves into Palestine a little bit, but they're pretty much, they're gone. Amalekites, gone. The Ammonites are still thriving and living as a people group today. They're known as Jordanians. As a matter of fact, the capital of Jordan is known as Ammon, which you can kind of see the similarity there. So these are Jordanians, a, a current people group. After this, the king of the Ammonites died. This was a friend This was, I would say, a loose friend of King David. David and his king got along pretty well, and his son reigned in his place. His son is surrounded by, his son is young, he's surrounded by a lot of counsel. There's a lot of other princes in there. There's a lot of other uh, warlords in there. And so Hanan, this guy, is now ruling. Look at verse 2 and watch what unfolds. And David said, "Um, I will deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. Now catch what happens. So everybody's picture this as as it unfolds. So David sent his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. So this doesn't sound anything unusual. He sends a peace party in. They go in to basically offer their condolences. These men are upper echelon officer or diplomatic corps members. These men would have, been, would have approached, this would have been a state visit. There are many different types of visits that you would make. There would be ceremonial, religious, holiday visits. This would have been a state visit. These men would have gone in dressed in regalia as if they are represented King David. So when they arrive, probably on white horses, when they arrive with their regalia and they go to offer respects. It is about a formal visit as you can make in a sense of mourning. And what happens? Verse 3. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan their lord, do you think, because David has sent comforters to you, comforters to you, that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search this city and to spy it out and overthrow it? You've heard the, um, the proverb, Wisdom is found in a multitude of counselors. And there's another that says wisdom is found in wise counsel. Hence the word, highlight it, underline it, wise counsel. Not count, counsel doesn't always direct a good thing. In this particular case, this is not a good thing. These, these guys who give counsel look at Hanan and they basically say this. They're not sending a party over here to mourn. They're not sending in a party over here to say, um, we'd like to... Uh, we like to offer condolences. No, they're sending in a bunch of spies. You can't buy into this. You can't let these spies come in here. They're going to over. They're going to look at the city. They're going to go back and give a report. They're going to overtake it. And so, what does Hanan do? Verse four. So, 
Hanan took David's servants, shaved off half the beard of each, and cut off their garments in the middle, at their hips, and sent them away. You may be thinking, well, gee whiz, what's the, uh, what's, that's kind of an odd reception. It's not only odd, but it's incredibly insulting. Hebrew men were, were encouraged to never trim their beards. So their beards would be just huge. You know, Matt Chameleon's beard, as a matter of fact. So anyway, you look at beards, and they would be beards where you would say, this is a beard that would indicate masculinity, leadership, a role. And so the fact that they shaved their beard, a face they have not seen since they were probably a teenager. And then to make matters worse, they cut off their garments right here. And, you know, maybe getting more historically in-depth than you want to know, but only priests wore undergarments. So that means their buttocks would have been showing. This is incredibly humiliating. I'm trying to make this mature, Julianne, and pull yourself together. Anyway, so so here you have these men, these poor guys have been shaved. Their their robes have been cut to where they obviously can't sit or bend over. And, And this is a place of pride that their thighs are showing, which would have been an incredible sign of weakness. Again, our mind, our Western culture doesn't see this much as like, what really does it happen? But in, I, had a, um, I had a friend I met after this happened. She was in Iraq, and they were, uh, they were hit with, an, um, with a sh- uh, rocket-propelled, or shoulder-propelled rocket. And there were five of them. Three of them died on a scene. Her husband would later die. And she, I was talking to her at lunch later in the States. I was like, do you remember anything happened? She said, I remember one thing happening. It was just, I just remember thinking it was the strangest thing. I remember I was bleeding all over the place. She ended up having 21 surgeries. She's written a book on this. And I think I have the book in my office. And as she's on the ground and people are coming up trying to help her, she specifically remembers a woman coming up and draping uh, uh, part of her headdress, whatever, over her ankles. I mean, she's bleeding to death. And in the heart of this woman did not want her ankles to be shown. And she remembers thinking, I'm thinking I'm dying here. I'm bleeding out and you're hiding my ankles. But that was what that woman wanted to do to give dignity. These are things our Western minds can't grasp. And so these men have been humiliated. And so verse 5, when it was told to David what happened, he sent to meet them. For the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Bethrob, and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Maacah with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. Basically, verse 6 says this, they hired a whole lot of mercenaries. The Ammonites, by the way, were wealthy people. These are people who had a lot of money, and so they gathered the people together, and they said, um... We have enough mercenaries to fight you. Verse um, 7. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the hosts of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and Rehob and the men of Tob and Mekah were there by themselves in the open country. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him in both the front and the rear... He chose some of the best men of Israel, and he put in charge of Abishai, his brother, and he raided them against the Ammonites. So basically, again, you have 
the Ammonites have drawn in now, not only the Ammonite army, but they have hired tens of thousands of Syrians who are, by the way, that's how they make their money, is fighting. Their young men are birthed and given over to military training and then basically sold out and leased out to kingdoms. Interesting. Um, this was a very common thing at the time. If you were if you were to delve into history today, you'd probably look at a modern version. Would be um, there's a certain region in India in Nepal that still supplied known as the Gurkhas, still supplied to this day men to fight for the uh, for the for England in, in the in their armed forces. The Vatican has. Um, Guards from Switzerland. There's a certain region in Switzerland to this day, 2,000 years later, still supply men to serve as papal guards in the Vatican. This was just a, a, the Syrians would raise these men up to go out and be fighters. And so Joab gets there. David sent Joab out there. Joab looks around and thinks, okay, this is more than I thought. I wasn't expecting to fight a bunch of Syrians today. So he looks at his brother and he basically says, where, where I am weak, you're going you're gonna to follow up and help out. Um, remember verse 10, verse uh, 11. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage. Let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians had fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from the fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. Well, basically the army disappeared. So these Ammonites, this king was thinking, well, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. Um, it basically, if you read in here, Look at verse 18. And the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed off the Syrians with the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen. For those of you who were biblical, like myopic students, you will notice there is, for the rest of you, if you're thinking, I'm going to get confused by it, just pause on this for a second. If you think you're confused by First Chronicles 17, where it mentions 7,000 chariots, we believe this was a clerical error by a scribe who really kind of missed a zero. So that's the best we can think. There are many, um, we truly do believe that, that one of those texts are correct or not. There's, it, it, it looks to be a discrepancy, but we do believe it to be a scribe error. Remember, as text was written, it was taken literally. So if, if, it was, if it was a smudge in a paper, they would not have transcribed that. The versions we have now um, take into account all the 5,000 manuscripts that have been brought together. So anyway, I just kind of say that as a side note. Verse 19, And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadazar saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. So basically, he has no more enemies. He has nothing left. What do you do? What do you do when you're the king of Israel and your entire nation's history has been being you're being pursued by an enemy or you're fighting an enemy. What do you do? Wars are basically brought forth to economically sustain a country. The war against America by Japan was only done in the initiative of Japan. Why? Because they had to get more 
industry in order to keep their country alive, so they attack us. Economically, it was a it was a ridiculous move when you look at it. Why would they choose to fight such a superpower as we were, even though we didn't have a large standing army? Even Yamamoto said, we've awakened a sleeping giant. Why would they do that? Because they were going to starve to death economically if they didn't go to war. Anytime you see these massive wars, it's because they are economically driven. In this particular case, Israel is now looking at themselves and thinking, we have no wars left to fight. There are no enemies out there. And what do you do? Is he going to expand his territory? Is Israel going to go out and start, start invading other countries? David is listening to God and saying, this is the heart of a guy who, by the way, if he doesn't bring all the chariots back, if he's not one who's bringing in everything, and this is a man who's not hoarding all of it, all of it but instead giving it out in equal terms, this is a man after God's own heart right now. This is a man who's a shepherd of his people. This was a shepherd at 13. He's a shepherd now at this age over the king of Israel. I'm going to watch out over my people. Israel is thriving in chapter 9. At the pinnacle of his success, he does something in an act of benevolence that is a picture of beauty. Chapter 9, verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Let me stop right here because I guarantee you there's people who've walked in here who may not know what this is about to be. David was pursued by a king. This king's name was Saul. David made best friends with one of king's sons. Who was that son? Anybody remember? Jonathan. Jonathan had a son named Mephibosheth. David and Jonathan were best friends. They loved each other. Their hearts were knitted to each other. And they knew. They knew that Jonathan's dad wanted to kill, that King Saul wanted to kill David. Jonathan has been killed in battle. Saul has been killed in battle. But David says, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul? How about this one? That I may show kindness to. That is another indicative aspect of, of, of the personality of David. Every other king, it was typical and custom that Peter, if you were the previous king, I'll just make myself the previous king. That way I feel really bad about killing y'all. If I was a previous king and you took power, you would eliminate me and anybody that was around me. All my family, everybody that I had in my house would be put to death because we would never be a threat to you again. That means all children. This is what was commonly done. And so when he asked this, David says, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul? What are you going to do? You're going to take it? No, that I may show kindness to them. Verse 2. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul. His name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. I always love it when the Bible goes into odd detail about that. Are you Ziba? I'm Ziba. That's <laughs> nice. Thanks for noting all that. But Ziba, by the way, is an estate manager. This guy's crooked. He's crooked from other scripture we know of. Had Ziba not been trying to take money off the till and take money and put it in his own pockets, Mephibosheth would not be, not be in this spot. Ziba, we're going to see later, has a lot of money too. But Ziba is this estate manager who's managing this estate for this poor prince, who's now, by the way, upper teens. 
17, 18, 19, somewhere. He's, he's upper teens. Ziba is managing this. And um, verse 3. And the king said, Is there still not someone of the house of Saul that I may show kindness to, of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, Watch what he says. Oh yeah, there's still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. This is like... What a way to be described. Why is he doing that? Is he describing that like, oh, by the way, he's, uh, he's crippled. You don't want anything to do with him. I mean, maybe I'm the one you're looking for. After all, he said, I, I want to show kindness to him. Oh, yeah, there's a cripple. It's a lame guy. Remember, lame, lame individuals in a New Testament even were being rescued by Jesus because they had no family. Remember the lame guy was lowered in on a thatched roof by his friends, the paralytic, and they lowered him down there. And Jesus said, that kind, this faithfulness is what I love to see. He was contagious. People were starting to love on the lame. They were. And in this case, we start to see everybody is recognizing that David is a place of peace. He just is. Typically, when you meet older Christians, there is a look of grace and peace that falls over their face. You go in their home. People always tell me this. Oh, yeah, I go to someone's home. It's just so, it's so orderly. It's so neat. I don't ever want to come to my home because they're going to see her, they're going to see her wreck. And, you know, I remember talking to my friend, Ardeth Webb. She's in her late 80s. And I said to her one day, I said, Ardeth, how are you? You just, you seem to have it all together. What is it? She said, honey, had you met me at my age, I was a basket case. I didn't know what was going on. But enough turns and enough things that happen, they begin to grow. And grace begins to abound. And you begin to see a sense of peace about them. And that's what happens with people who walk in the Lord. There's just a sense of peace. It just is. I've, ever been, like, I've always said this to my friends. I'm at a restaurant and I'm like, if I look over, have I ever seen anybody order pie for lunch? I, I'm like, that person right there has nothing bad going on in their life. That person is a total place of contentment and peace if you order pie for lunch. I'm just telling you right now. You don't have any problems. I think that, you know, in all seriousness, when you look at us, somebody who says, can you bring someone in that I can show kindness to? I think you're at a, you're at a solid place of security and a solid place of peace. And Ziva says, oh yeah, there's a cripple. Historically, I think David is adhering to a covenant that he made with Jonathan. Go back with me on the screens if you'd look at 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 14 through 17. This is the, the last words of Jonathan and David to each other. It says this, Jonathan says, If I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance of David's, on David's enemies. And, made Jonathan, and Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, that he loved him as much as he loved his own soul. This was a conversation David remembered. This was a conversation that David was going back to. And some of you are asking, and I want to bring this up, if you're asking, why is Mephibosheth crippled? How did that happen? Remember, King Saul and Jonathan were in battle, and they were overrun and killed. And they were, and all the other sons were killed, except for Ishbosheth. He later was killed. And back at the home, 
word got to the to the palace. Word is they run into the palace and basically say everyone from the house of Saul is dead. Run. And what happens in Second Samuel verse four four? This gives, helps you understand why he's paralyzed. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. So he was. He's been lame since he's a child. And in this particular case, the the king is wanting to do something about it. Verse four. Go back to the text here. The king says to uh, Ziba, he says, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he's in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, at Lobar, Lobadar. And the king sent him and brought him from the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, at Lobadar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. Now, let me stop right here where it says, and Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, basically that's a that's a that's an intro, that's a formal introduction. This would have been the formal introduction of a prince. The writer here is writing as if he's introducing the prince. It says, And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, fell on his face, and paid homage. You have to remember, Mephibosheth has no idea why he's being brought there. He's thinking, he's going to kill me. I'm the last surviving member of the house of Saul. He's going to take my life. Falls down in front. And he says, "Um, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will store to you all the land of your father and you shall eat at my table always. Interesting point I just caught that I didn't catch in the last service. It says, do not fear, I'll show you kindness for who? For the sake of your father, Jonathan. David is a man's man. David is a leader. David's a king. He's a warrior. This man has killed hundreds and hundreds of men with his own hands. And this man is not some softy who's looking at him going, oh man, I just really feel sorry for you. He looks at him, for the sake of your father, you're a new man. This is a powerful thought, a powerful line. Basically, I loved your father so much, and because of that, you now have a spot at my table to eat always. Verse 8, and he paid homage, and he said, what is your servant that you should show regard for such a dead dog as I? Now remember, dogs, as much as we love them, and we love our dogs, are not a term of endearment in Scripture, even all the way to the New Testament. I mentioned this before. Jesus even said, he says, you know, he says, compare Gentiles to dogs. Even dogs leave bones off the ground. Remember where the, the, between David and Goliath, they yell at each other, he goes, you come at me like a dog? I mean, this, dogs were scavenger beasts that had really not fallen into the pet realm unless you were royalty. And so they, were, they ate the scraps, they cleaned up the vermin and that kind of thing. And so Mephibosheth simply says, what am I, but I'm a dead dog. Why would you do this? And you have to remember, he's been carried in thinking he was going to get killed. He's then placed in front of a king thinking he's going to get killed. He then has to turn his body to a condition where he can't even get on his knees or walk. Or, and he falls down, flaps down, and bows to, king, to the king. This is, it's a pitiful sight. And the king says, no, 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 no. You're not my servant. But for the sake of your father, 
You're part of this family now. Verse um, 9. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall tend land for him and shall bring him in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Oh, by the way, remember that shrewd manager, Ziba? Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. This guy had had money. But basically, says, Mephibosheth, you'll never want the rest of your life. At my table is where you eat. Verse 11. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands a servant, so your servants will do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons, and Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and who also lived in Ziba's house, became, uh, who lived in Ziba's house, became, um, and all who lived, I'm sorry, in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. And here it is. Ready? How odd. Now he was lame in both feet, in both his feet. Why would the scribe put that there? Why would the writer put that there? Why would that description be in there? And I think it's a reminder to us, to you and I, may we never, ever, ever forget when someone is brought to God's table and God's presence, they're a new creation. You don't describe them as, oh, they're lame in their feet. I think that's a good reminder. I remember looking at my own life, I'm thinking, there, you know, you look at Scripture, and in New Testament, the people that have the hardest time being accepted in culture are lepers. This went on for a long time. Leper colonies. People would, they would have leprosy, they'd be banished. I can't imagine what it'd be like to have leprosy, to watch it start at some point and know you are going to be taken away from your family, your community, never to see them again and put into a colony. And so in scripture, lepers are the ones that Jesus approached. He'd say, they, they would yell out unclean. And he'd say, who are you to say you're unclean? He says, you're healed. Go to the priest. Call your, do, your, do your rabbinical duties to the priest. Then come back to me. There are times when lepers would, would walk into a village and, and the entire village would run. And I'm thinking today, if I were to put in an email, you know, hey, next Sunday we'll have so-and-so, a leper. You, everybody would come in here like, yeah, we will. you would love on them. Carrie, you'd, I know you'd like put them down right next to me. It's not easy to love somebody who has those kind of problems, right? You would do anything to help. We, as a body of believers, look at that and think, oh, man, how shallow. What is our leprosy of the day today? Oddity. I remember um, I was coming back from, um, I'd say oddity and high maintenance, those kind of things. I was coming back from a whitewater rafting, rafting trip, oddly enough, on a Labor Day weekend. I was coming back to my friend Bob Sinek. We were driving a van. We had all these vans. We had buses full of college-age students. I mean, there was just, you know, I mean, a couple hundred students. We, we left, like, Tennessee to come back home around 11 at night, driving through the night. I haven't slept in three days, really. And, I'm, and Bob, my right-hand man, had not slept either. And he's driving. And I remember he, we hit the ridges on the road. You know, those, 
little ridges that sound like a chainsaw. Or you're getting riddled by an enemy fighter when you get, you know. And I woke up and I looked over and Bob was doing this. Oh, thank you, Peter. And uh, so I remember looking up and I'm thinking, man, uh, Bob, Bob, you got to wake up. I was too sleepy to even say anything. I was like, I said, hey, Bob, you got to wake up. He goes, I'm trying. And he's still driving. And it's just, I'm miserable. And, and I remember thinking, I got to talk. And I knew if I brought up a name of someone, he would come together. Because Bob loved everybody. I'd say, oh man, did so-and-so, they had a good time. He goes, yeah, they sure did. Yeah, that was great. I could really see. What about this person? Yeah, 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 yeah. And then I mentioned this one person who was just strange. You know, a strange person. And, and he said, oh, hey, had a great time. Yeah, that person had a great time. And I said, yeah, I'm so glad they had a good time. And he goes, I said, it, you know, it's just a really kind of... I didn't know how they'd do. And, you know, he goes, yeah, you know, um, I'm glad the church is there for them. They got a place. I remember thinking, man, me too. The strange, the high maintenance, the oddity, those are the lepers of our day. The person who doesn't have anything to contribute to our life is basically a leper. And God is what he's done and he does is brings together a church to go out and do something to help these people. The reality is most of us are in bubbles. We're in Christian bubbles. We just really are. I mean, if you were to ask me right now, Jake, do you know any homeless people that woke up on Franklin Street, homeless, or had to stay the night in some gutter in Ebor? No, I don't. Can't name them by name. I don't know of anyone. If you're a no, Jake, do you know anybody right now struggling in meth that is just at a at the moment not right now? Do you know anybody that? But the reality is, I think if we were to go around this room, a lot of us would recognize that we are in protective measures. We are in the pinnacles of success. The home is well. The family is expanding. Things are going well. And if we're not careful, we will be a place that always looks to doing nothing more than expanding our own like who we are. But he brings us together as a church to collectively come together to scratch our heads and say, I don't necessarily know anybody who's in dire straits, but we can come together corporately and do something about it. We can come together and see what it means to come alongside. Last week, we just entered to a partnership with the building right in back of us. You go out that door, turn right, and hit a building in 20 feet called Tampa Bay Harvest. It's a place we're going to offer you an opportunity if you want to come help out at a food bank. Folks, you want to go there on a Monday, Wednesday, Friday from 1030 to 130 and watch the people flocking in who need help. Oh yeah, by the way, they're going to flock in there with cars, there'll be those who take advantage of the system. I mean, I was a pastor for too long to see who takes advantage of everything. People who show up in a car nicer than mine, picking to the food, oh, I don't eat no, too much sodium, or I want this, or not like that, and just gritting my teeth the whole time thinking, no, you'll get that. But you have to look through it. You have to look through the zebas who are managing the things and look to the heart of someone who people say they're lame in their feet and they'll never be a thing. And you look at people that God has called us as a church to love on that you might not otherwise love on. That's the beauty of a church. When people walk and say, I'm looking for a church to teach God's word. Thanks, that's good. I'm looking for a church to praise God. Absolutely, worship God. You bet. 
But if you're not careful, we'll be a church who's looking for everything for us. God has called us as a church not just to collectively worship together, but to collectively do something together. And so, in this particular case, there's still the knowledge that he is lame in both his feet. But at that table, he wasn't. At that table, he was someone. Um, Psalm 138, verse 8 reads this way. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. That means this. If you are sitting in a place of wondering, why is my life stagnant? Why is my life frozen? Why is my life seem to not have purpose and drive at the moment? Here's my best advice for you. Are you ready? Put down any self-help book. Put, just for a moment, think of this. Look primarily at one word. Obedience. In scripture, there's a common thread of everyone God has used. They were obedient. They were merely being obedient. And obedience means this. Obedience means just try talking to God. We call that prayer. Would just make the ease of approaching him and saying, Father, I, you know, God, I, I don't necessarily know the right words to talk to you, but I want to talk to you. I want you to speak through me. It means opening up his word. It means going into scripture and reading and saying, God, you're going to have to make this applicable and understandable for me. It's in those things you start doing just simply being obedient. And then what happens? God will fulfill the purpose for you. I guarantee you, Bethibosheth is sitting at home, never thinking that day he's going to be called to the king's palace and ushered in front of the king to say, leave your place. You're going to be eating at my table from now on. You'll never want for anything. And that's it. I guarantee you, he never thought that. But may we be a place and a believer that never, ever brings up the words and they're crippled at their feet. If you were to ever ask me what I think, how I think we protect Creekside is this, we do not um, become politically involved. We don't endorse candidates. We are founded on foundational Christian principles and there are issues we will die on the hill for. I mean, when it comes to life, when it, when it comes to um, issues where we, we will, of course, fall on those swords. But we'll never be up here saying, oh, for the next Republican candidate, or how about that Democratic? We'll never, and I pray that as you, as you go to dinner or lunch with people you don't know in your inner circle, don't go into those discussions. Why? Because if we're not careful, we will cheapen the gospel by saying, those lame, feeded people. And we'll have missed it. And so what we have to do is focus on the table that you and I are at, the table you and I have been brought to, and understand we have, an, uh, we have people around us that we can share and invite. I'm not saying, like I said, don't be, I'm not saying don't be politically involved. L, I know you gave it a good fight. And you stood, you, you put yourself in an arena when others wouldn't. People saying, I'm going to sacrifice my own uh, drives and my own selfish ambitions to be a servant of the state. And that's a wonderful, admirable thing. And we are honored when people do that. But there is nothing greater than the gospel. In every kingdom that ever existed 
I think, thought they would have lasted, and they didn't. A thousand-year Reich, I think, made it nine years. A thousand-year reign in another place, I think maybe they got six years. And no matter where we stand, even as Americans, unfortunately, I think, maybe not in our lifetime, but maybe someone else's, we won't be here. But the gospel will. The gospel is what drives us. And that means this. It means when you look at scripture, you stop looking at people with crippled feet. That's why the importance of reading through scripture and praying, you stop letting the news own you. Because folks, I'm gonna be I can be real with y'all. I've always said this. This is like my this is my family. I watch enough news and I get so frustrated and the flesh comes out in me, and I don't even like that side of me. You can stick me in front of Fox News for three hours, I'm ready to grab a musket and march on Washington. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, I'm like, this is it, I've had it. But I'll tell you what always balances me, it always brings me back is the gospel. It makes me see people differently. I need to see people differently. Why? Because I don't like looking at people with lame feet. I don't like calling them of those things. May we never be a church that says, oh, this person has been saved, but you know what? They're this. This person is, but they're this. That person was a cheater. That person's been divorced two times. That person's queer. That person's overweight. That person's this. That's crippled feet. That is making a statement to say this. That the judgment of someone is far greater than the grace and the power and the presence of a table at the king's place. You and I... We're Mephibosheths, saved by God's grace, brought to a table that we didn't earn, we didn't deserve, we were never invited to, but brought to a table where the table is protected, it's sanctified, and surely it's guarded. But at that place, at that presence of God, at the presence of believers, at the presence of real, raw love, the person forgets they have crippled feet. I think what makes me hurt for this person is this. Mephibosheth was a man who was supposed to be king of Israel. Think about that. The man was, he was in line to be the king of Israel after his father Jonathan. The nurse who dropped him had probably cradled him with songs about him being the king of Israel. And for years, that man sat in a house and wasted away knowing what could have happened. And that's why my heart goes out to anyone who's ever been divorced. I I'd never, I don't think I've ever met one couple who ever said, yeah, when we went up to the altar, we got married, we recited our vows to each other. I don't think you ever did that in anticipation of a collapse of marriage. I don't think you've ever found anyone who's ever lost a relationship with a mother, with a son or daughter, who ever set out on that journey to say, I'm going to build this family up to a place of saying, I'm going to release this person if they disagree with me. It doesn't happen that way. Circumstances cripple families. I don't think I've ever met a pastor who's ever fallen away who said, yeah, I'm going to go to seminary, I'm going to live in a public fishbowl and a fish eye, uh, eye of everyone, and I'm going to fail in front of everyone just so everyone can notice. And, yeah, no. Failure 
is what is waiting. It's waiting behind every turn of pride, every slither of invincibility, and everything you think cannot attack you. And my, have the mighty have fallen. And as you, for the younger people, as you live life long enough, you'll be amazed. How all the left-hand hooks you never thought would come, they came in. But know this. No matter that you've lost hope, no matter that you'll ever be in a land where there's just darkness and there seems to be no hope at all, there's a table meant for you. And it's a place where love abounds. Romans 15, 13 says this, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that the power of the Holy Spirit you may have bound in hope. At that table, in the presence of the Father, that proverbial table that may be either us collectively coming together as, as worshipers, you going into the Word, you going into prayer, at that table is where something happens. That the power of the Holy, Holy Spirit will abound in hope. The scripture is beautiful. It says, when you are faithless, God says, I am faithful. When you have given up on hope, I am hope. When you've given up on life, I am life. And so he says to you in every capacity, you come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What a God. What a table. What a presence. And at that place, no more crippled feet. And in his church, let's pray, no more crippled feet. And in your life, in the hurts you're going through, in the inadequacies and in sin and temptation you feel you're, you're part of, don't think yourself a hypocrite when you go to God. Not at all. For at that table is life. In his presence, there are no crippled feet. In his presence, the temptation does not rule you. In, the, in his presence, the power and the love of the Holy Spirit abounds even when you do not know how to walk on your own. What a thought. Pray with me, please. Jesus, thank you for the love of you towards us where we don't deserve. Thank you, Father, for the fact that we, each one of us, can come to you maybe wrecked with our own sinful natures, our own disasters, our own levels of hypocrisy, our selfishness, our blindness. Father, whatever we have, Father, those things seem to prevent us from going into your presence. Lord, we find ourselves in your presence, we notice something happens that your greatness and your love overtake and overwhelm all those things that have held us back. And Lord, so it's no wonder that at that table in your presence, love abounds. The power of the Holy Spirit abounds. And Father, we thank you for a life of David that's shown us by example what it means to show grace and love. So Lord, we pray today that that message still reigns in the hearts of one, two, or three people in here. Father, if they're believers, that they would simply understand what it means to come to your presence. 
what it means to no longer be judged. Father, for those of us who are believers who watch people come to that table, Lord, may we not point fingers. May we, Father, look within and say, Lord, thank you for letting us be at this table as well. And Father, for those in here who've never received you as Savior, never known what it means to taste of your goodness, I would pray that they would simply ask the person, with all the courage they have, the person next to them at some point, how to make that happen, how to be saved. If they came by themselves or the other person just wants to send them to one of us and send them to me, we'd be able to talk to them about what it means to be saved in you. Lord, we love you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.